This is Digital Pathology Today. Now here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. Amidst this digital transformation in pathology, it's not only the review of histologic sections that's going digital, but practically everything else is too. What does this mean for the future of publishing and pathology education with the advent of online content and novel delivery mechanisms? Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. Our guest is Dr. Jason Hornick, Director of Surgical Pathology and Immunohistochemistry at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, as well as Professor of Pathology at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Hornick is a pathologist with expertise in soft tissue, tumor pathology, GI pathology, and diagnostic immunohistochemistry. He's the editor of the fifth series of the AFIP, Atlases of Tumor and Non-Tumor Pathology. He serves on 14 editorial boards, including the American Journal of Surgical Pathology, as well as Modern Pathology. He's dedicated to the advancement of diagnostic surgical pathology and teaching approaches to diagnostic pathology for trainees, as well as practitioners. We're going to be talking about the mission and history of the American Registry of Pathology, the publishers of the beloved fascicles, now in their fifth series. What is the future of publishing going to look like with the advent of online content, which can be updated much more frequently than the traditional five to 10 year cycle of publishing for hard copies of textbooks? What does online content, social media, and other forces mean for peer review as well as scientific authority? And what's the future of education going to look like, not only for pathology trainees, but also continuing education for practicing pathologists? Dr. Jason Hornick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. You wear a lot of different hats. You're a professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School, head of surgical pathology at Brigham and Women's. And in this capacity, we're talking to you from the American Registry of Pathology. You know, I think we all know about the fascicles, which is that great series of publications in the analog age, those light blue, those thin little light blue books on all the various disease states. There's an association between the ARP and the defunct AFIP, which was rebirthed into the Joint Pathology Center. But maybe just tell us, tell us a little bit about the American Registry of Pathology, a little bit about the history, when was it founded, and, and what what do you folks do there? These fascicles have a really long history. In fact, they really started in the late 1940s, early 1950s, after there was a cancer research meeting in St. Louis. The goal of the fascicles was to standardize nomenclature of cancer, of neoplastic diseases. The National Academy of Science, National Research Council, was were the first sponsors of the first series, you know, which were obviously many decades ago. Early on, the illustrations were provided by the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, the AFIP, you know, which you mentioned, and they also were the first printers of the fascicles. The American Registry of Pathology acquired the fascicles soon after, and it was sort of a joint venture, as it were, between the AFIP and the ARP for many decades. And as you said, the fascicles, these atlases, have been incredible resources both for pathologists in training and practice, practicing pathologists for, um, for over 60 years now. They've gone through many different series. They started off as these very, these kind of soft cover monographs, and then they transitioned in the fourth series to being hardcover. They, they had a red cover. And then finally, we started the fifth series recently, uh, and now they have a white cover, the, the hardcover versions. 
the AFIP, as you said, sort of has been has been gone for more than a decade now, but the ARP is still publishing the fascicles. They're still going, and we still use the AFIP name in the fascicles, the, the atlases of tumor and non-tumor pathology. In the previous series, in the fourth series, we started publishing a second line of non-tumor fascicles, which were predominantly inflammatory diseases. But now in the fifth series, we're publishing both together consecutively as they happen. So it's a combined atlas of tumor and non-tumor pathology. And I'm the editor-in-chief of the fifth series. We've actually just recently published um, the 11th volume in the series. In total, there will be about 35 volumes. The first volume was published, the hard copy, just about two years ago now. So we're moving pretty quickly into this new series. Maybe I'm kind of showing my age there. <laughs> my, you know, my fond association is with those light blue, uh, yes, soft covered, yes. soft yes, covered. Yes, yes. Were... Well, 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 I have those too. So I, it's, uh, it's actually not that long ago that they were soft cover. It's only a series and a half ago. It's not that long. Which was a tremendous resource, particularly. I mean, I guess for you know everyone, pathologists in practice, but you know in particular maybe residents in training. If you didn't know something, it was just a nice, concise place to look. Like, oh, you don't know just go look in the fascicle yes know, and, yes exactly and kind of as you alluded to it there, i think there's many different purposes you know of it one of which is you know continuing medical education residency training but it, from the very onset it seems like the mission was disease classification you know from an era where that was maybe more necessary where it was kind of the early days What's the, throughout this journey, what is the overall mission of the ARP? Is there a kind of guiding principles that you go by or what, what are you hoping to accomplish? Really, the, the main mission is about education, just as you said. I mean, really, the fascicles are incredibly up-to-date resources by the world experts in the field for any particular subspecialty area to provide the trainees and the practitioners with really nice resources for practice. Now that the World Health Organization has a tumor classification, we certainly try to have an alignment between the classification, the WHO, and the content in the in the fascicles. Although if the authors have some disagreements, which occasionally happens, we try to provide some alternative views, but whenever possible, we try to at least include some comment on the most current classification. So we try to time it so that we're pretty much on the same classification scheme as the WHO. Really, the forefront of this is educational and as a resource for diagnostic pathologists. The remarkable thing that the fascicles, that distinguishes the fascicles from other resources is the fact that they, at their heart, they're atlases, and certainly they're not only pictorial collections. They have a lot of incredibly rich content in terms of how you diagnose tumors, the most recent molecular genetics that you apply for classification, immunistic chemistry and outcome and differential diagnosis, but they include many different images of a single particular tumor type, really trying to illustrate the wide range that you might encounter in practice. Pretty much, you know, other textbooks, other resources just don't have the flexibility to be able to include so many examples of a particular tumor. They're often kind of showing the kind of the most classic prototypical example. But because we are publishing these atlases that have, you know, very large rich images as the fundamental center of the of the content we can include 
huge numbers of, of photomicrographs. That's an interesting point is that, the, or as they say in medicine, when you hear hoof prints, when you, when you hear <laughs> hoof, hoof beats, you know, don't think, don't think about zebras. But I think that's an interesting point is that it's not necessarily so much cut and dried and that there is room for interpretation. And that's really where we get the benefits of these experts and there's editorial content and explanations of why we think this classification is more accurate than this one. And then, as you said, we come across more molecular information. The landscape is evolving and that we, it may be more appropriate to classify a disease into this bucket or that, depending on the new molecular features that have been recently uncovered. Um, and then you said it's pathology, of course, is largely an image-based specialty. And what's that going to look like as we go into the digital age? It, it seems like there's big changes at the IRP. Uh, you have an updated uh, website or you're expanding the website to be more of a resource. And there's going to be more digital content to accommodate these more images, these larger number of images and so on. So what does it look like in 2022? You know, the resources that the ARP has to offer and in particular, what does the website look like? As you said, we, we very recently launched a whole new website, which instead of it just being a resource you can go to, to publish the fascicles, now it includes an entirely um, digital searchable version of all the fascicles in the new fifth series. It's really quite interactive. You can do search terms or phrases with all of the images in line and you can blow up the images. You can download them to use for educational purposes. If you're giving a lecture and you want to use it for teaching, it's a really dramatic shift from our standalone hardcover volumes, which we still publish and many pathologists, as I'm sure you know, really like textbooks. So we, I think more than any other field, even though we're so visual, we really like hard copies for the most part, although it's it'll be interesting to see what happens with the next generation of pathologists, whether they still like to have physical books. But in addition, all of the volumes are now digital in this new format, which we're incredibly excited about. Thinking back to when I was a trainee, I was admonished by the my training program director. You know, they would show unknowns or you would have a difficult case and someone would come up with the answer and he would say, well, how did you figure that out? He goes, well, I just looked in a textbook and I matched, <laughs> and I matched the picture to what I saw. And, <laughs> yes. you know, he, that wasn't a good answer, apparently. So right, that, that's right. a very that's a very poor way to, to practice pathologies, just try, trying to find, match, it, match it with a picture in a, in a textbook. But I think, you know, I think as we move into the digital age, I think it, I think I can't help but think it's going to make us better at what we do. And there's many more resources at our disposal. I mean, so even searching by searchable text to match with images, indexing of images, yes, yes. You know, in cross-referencing with patient demographics, outcomes, you know, response to therapy. I think it's whole new worlds are being op open to us. And I think we're, we in pathology are going to be the, the beneficiaries of this new way of doing things. What is the future going to look like as science and publishing standards change? I think one thing people are focused on, information is cycling and evolving more quickly. As things become digital, one thing is the cry for almost an updating in real time, perhaps, yes, or yes. shorter shorter time intervals between editions. You know, what's the future going to look like? I think your last point is really incredibly relevant. I think that as it's getting so much easier to find the content you're looking for, and as the research changes so fast, and that even includes clinical research that's for us as, as practicing pathologists is relevant to how we 
sign out cases, how we report things, what is the prognostic or predictive consequence of what we're saying, it is really critical to stay up to date. I think that certainly having digital content available that you can update, um, I'm not sure about real time. I think that becomes a big problem for all the academics who are doing this sort of education as a side gig to, uh, in addition to their clinical workload, it becomes very hard to ask people to to update their content so fast. But certainly I think that the intervals between updates have to be shorter than they have been. It, it, in the past, it was often about a decade between volumes of textbooks and you know even the, the major classification systems had pretty long lag time between between the different versions. And I think now those have sort of moved to the four to five year interval. And I think they're gonna to continue to get compressed. And certainly when all the content becomes more easily accessible online, it'll be easier for updates to happen because it won't require necessarily reprinting an entire volume of, of a textbook. It really can be much more selective updates uh, so long as it's sort of clear what version you're looking at, what the most recent update times were for that. And I think that's going to be a huge, I don't know, a big challenge to publishing because you know publishing has been print for so long, many of the journals are deciding to stop publishing in print. Um, a lot of the major pathology journals are going to stop print copies to be sent out. It's only going to be a digital format. And I suspect that that many of the publishers of, of textbooks and atlases are going to probably follow suit. For now, for the ARP, we're still planning to publish both the hard copies, which I still think are kind of helpful to pull down from your shelf if you're if you're much more old-fashioned, like uh, maybe like you and I are, but yeah. but I think they're also very helpful for pathology departments who have training programs where the residents sort of have them available easily. Um, but at the same time, um, I think that you, we have to have more quickly updated online content, and that's going to really be where publishing is changing, as you said. It certainly is changing. Now, let me throw you a curveball. Is there a dark side to it? <laughs> you know, that as things go digital and as things go online, kind of hastens perception that it can be updated more frequently. Something is in a text, a hard copy, it seems like there's more of a permanence to it. Yes. Right? This has got to, this is going to last for five or 10 years. Yes. And then also now we have social media, we have various platforms out there like Path Presenter, Kiko. Yeah. We've had the founders from both of those on this podcast. Yes. Those draw in experts, and then it kind of raises the question is, is the future of publishing going to look different, and how do we enforce the standards of peer review? Yes. You know, what constitutes, for lack of a better word, how do we know what the truth is? So if you have the world's expert weighing in on a social media type site about what he thinks of this, that, and the other tumor, is that the same the same level of authority as, as a publication? Or at the very least, is it going to look different? You know, what we take to be a worthwhile level of evidence to, to do something in practice. I, th I think it's wonderful how people can sort of spread interesting cases and, and do a lot of teaching on social media platforms. But at the same time, without any other review of that content, it's very difficult to know what is true. I've sort of seen many of the cases that people put online and and sometimes they're incredibly helpful teaching tools. And other times I feel like it sort of confuses the issue. And some people's comments are unfortunately pretty far afield of what the diagnosis really is. So 
I think that is a danger when there really is no peer review. There's no other expert review. And people weighing in based on a few still images, I think, is a sort of dangerous thing. As, a, as an expert consultant, I almost never feel comfortable looking at a few still images to make a diagnosis on something that's incredibly challenging and rare. And, and certainly, you know, when you have real digital pathology, you can, you can review the slide digitally instead of on a microscope. That's a different matter. And I think as we are able to do that much more easily, as more and more material can be put online quickly and cheaply, that will certainly page, uh, change the consultation part of the difficulty of surgical pathology. That kind of balance between readily available, teachable content with cases presented continuously online, balance between the atlases, the textbooks, the journals that are incredibly rig rigorously peer-reviewed and edited by experts. I still think there will be a role for both, but I, th I think it's going to be a difficult balance. It's going to be difficult to figure out uh, how we deal with that, with that poll. And how are residents and trainees going to make sense of all this? You know, is, is, how is training going to evolve or look different as we enter the digital age? I mean, it seems like it was, I'm guessing, it was probably very much the same for yes. many, many, many years. You know, it involved, you know, unknown case conferences and maybe a multi-headed scope and then a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with the attendings yeah, yeah. <laughs> during the sign out or maybe previewing the cases. But now it seems like we're entering a whole new world where residents have access to all of this online content, you know, you know and then not to mention AI tools and, you know, maybe yes. <laughs> a little bit out of scope of what we're talking about, you know, but diagnostic assist tools and artificial intelligence that they may have access to that are kind of steering them or telling them maybe even what the diagnosis is. So how, how do you see residency training evolve? It's really already changed pretty fast, I would say, in the last five to 10 years now that all the major conferences, uh, CME courses are providing a lot of online digital slides for review as unknowns, as you said, but now instead of just picking up a slide and looking yourself at your microscope, now they can be reviewed virtually. That's now become standard for many of our large academic pathology organizations that provide continuing education and resident training. More recently, the same thing is happening for residency training programs, where many of these unknown conferences are now entirely virtual. I think the biggest shift for resident training is going to be when more and more of the large academic practices become entirely digital in their primary case review. I'm sure you've spoken with or interviewed some of the pioneers in the field who are already doing that at their practices, but that's still a pretty small subset of academic pathology. And I'm sure in the next 10 years, it's going to transform all of surgical pathology. So we're just going to be doing primary digital review, vir virtual review, as it were. And then we're going to have to figure out how do we do that with a resident? If we're accustomed to sitting in our own cockpit, looking at a few screens with the electronic medical record and our images and radiology, uh, and we're just navigating everything ourselves, you know, how do we engage the residents in that process? Are they going to be looking over our shoulder? Are they going to be looking at a, their own screens that are mirrors of that? How are we doing? Are we going to still do that one-on-one? -on -one? Are we going to have a group of residents who are following us as we're talking about our case review. Um, I'm not quite sure how that's going to play out, but I think it's all going to be digital. We have a huge residency training program where I work. In fact, we have now just formed a joint residency training program between the Mass General Hospital and the Brigham and Women. So 
all of a sudden we're going to have more than 20 new residents a year, which I think is probably the largest pathology training program in the world. I'm not quite sure how we're going to be doing resident training in a few more years. I think for now, most of our unknown conferences, we're having all the slides scanned so that everyone from both hospitals and training can review the cases. But what about primary review? That's that's still not quite clear to me how that's going to happen. There is a certain sense of inevitability, yes. as you said, that, that we're going to everything, everyone is going to be fully digital in the next five to 10 years or so. Yes. But yet contrast that with the current level of adoption, which is surprisingly low, five to 10%, depending on who you believe. I think we can all envision roughly what the future is, but like you said, no one knows exactly what what it's going to look like, or as they say, you never know until you know. You never know until you're (laughs) actually there and actually doing this. Signing out is going to probably look different. We're going to have more resources at our disposal. You know, we're going to have resources like from the ARP online, you know, more information that we can incorporate into reports. We're going to have new tools for prediction and prognosis, AI-based tools and other image analysis tools that we can incorporate into our, our review of H&E sections. And so how do you see anatomic pathology evolving, you know, just in terms of the primary diagnosis and the information that we're able to provide to doctors and patients. I think that the fundamental practice of anatomic pathology will probably, at its heart, not be so different, but the way that we do it is going to be fundamentally changed. And I could certainly see how the way that we organize practice settings is probably going to have to shift. You know, I know that we are struggling as a field to kind of maintain high enough volumes of trained pathologists to fill the needs for specialty. Uh, And I suspect once we've become more fully digital uh, adoption, we're probably going to have practices reviewing cases from sort of larger catchment areas, sort of very small areas that are really having trouble attracting pathologists. We'll probably just have digital slide scanning or sort of central practices that are reviewing many of those cases. And I'm not saying that small practices have to stop doing what they're doing, there will be some kind of a balance, a a way to maintain pathology coverage where we are struggling at the current time once digital pathology is is more fully integrated to our practices. I I think that's probably going to be the biggest shift. I'm not sure how adoption of digital pathology in the next 10 or 15 years is going to change what we provide in terms of surgical pathology for our other clinical colleagues and patients, I think much of that's going to be the same. We're adopting molecular genetic technologies and you know correlative technologies using immunohistochemistry, looking at proteins. That's going very fast, and that's probably going to be similarly shifting as we go forward and just do everything a bit more virtually. A bit more virtually, I think that may be the great equalizer. You know, in terms of as you said the different catchment areas, the barriers coming down between a large group practice and a rural setting, right? Where if you can do all of the stuff remotely, and then conversely, if you can send this stuff to an expert in the big city with the click of a mouse, rather than uh, FedEx (laughs) taking (laughs) two two weeks or or what have you, that's going to dramatically change what we do. And it's, you know, it's hard to really know what to believe about the shortage of pathologists. I think, you know, globally, for sure. In the US, I think it's, you know, I've heard people say, it's not so much that we have a shortage of pathologists, it's it's that we have a shortage of pathologists in the right specialties in the right locations. So, you know, in the big cities, Boston, New York, San Francisco, no problem. But you you get out into the rural areas and 
you might be hard pressed to find a, a renal pathologist or a neuropathologist, you know, or even a high volume surgical pathologist. Yes. And so I think, yeah, this could be uh, one of the great equalizers, just things going online and the ability to sign out remotely and send cases remotely. Yeah. And I, and I think that really will help with shortages in particular subspecialties where there's so few people who train in those areas. If there really are just those experts in a small number of locations that can review these cases virtually from everywhere, that'll be incredibly valuable. Before we wrap up, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get, how did you come to be associated with the American Registry of Pathology and how did you come to be interested in all of this digital content? I'm kind of a holdover to an older era in some ways. I'm, uh, even though I'm a subspecialist in um, sarcoma pathology and gastrointestinal pathology as my main areas, I've been practicing in a hybrid model in my hospital for almost 20 years before we, w we went entirely subspecialized just over a year ago. So I really consider myself a general surgical pathologist with um, pretty broad interests in oncologic surgical pathology. Um, so I've been working in, you know, various, um, working as editors of textbooks and, you know, various uh, journals and, you know, surgical pathology clinics and various other series. And when the last series of the American Registry of Pathology Atlases was closing, the ARP was looking for a new editor-in-chief. And initially, Liz Montgomery and myself were the editor and the associate editor. And then Liz uh, stepped down and I became the editor-in-chief. And I feel like for me, since education is sort of one of the key parts of my professional goals and, and what I really love doing, not only lecturing, but publishing and teaching in, in the written microscopic format, I was really excited to take on the editorship of the AFIP fascicles. And as I took this on with the board of the American Registry of Pathology and the publishing group with whom I work, we've been talking for a couple years now about how we can best transition into a digital format where we will have online content that's searchable and accessible to, to everybody. But I think one of the really cool things about this is now institutions have the possibility to have a subscription so that all, for example, all practitioners and residents in training can have access to all of the volumes that are cross-searchable without having to get individual you know, print copies if that's, if that's not your preference. I'm not one of the pioneers in digital pathology, certainly. I see how critical it is for us in practice now and even more so for the next generation who are, for whom digital is just everything they do in their lives. And I'm excited that the fascicles can kind of be there to transition to digital searchable content. I'm just waiting for the time when I won't be routinely using my microscope anymore, which I think for me will be a bit a bit scary and a bit sad, but I'm I'm I feel like I'm just about ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The fascicles will be there, which is great news. So what tell us what before we wrap up, what what excites you? How do you see the field evolving in the next ten years or so? Transitioning to, to digital primary cyanide is really exciting. Many people have been resistant to that shift, but I, I think it's now clear to everybody that, that, as you said, it is inevitable. I'm really looking forward to that. I think that's going to open up a lot of possibilities for us, both in terms of sharing cases and teaching that we really 
haven't been able to do previously. So I think the digital pathology piece is a is a huge part of, of what I'm excited about. And the other aspect is the adoption of molecular pathology and predictive medicine. That's become such a fundamental, a central part of what we do in surgical pathology. And I see that becoming even more uh, integrated into our practice. So it's it's going to be surgical and molecular pathology is really going to be one field. It's not going to be these two fields that have been somewhat siloed over the first 20 years of the really molecular pathology field. I, th I think it's going to be one training program, one part of practice as it becomes even more broadly applicable to all different cancer types. I, I completely agree. I think this is really going to be maybe a, a rebirth or a, a renaissance really incorporating surgical and, and molecular. And, you know, and I think the overarching theme is really to, to enhance or elevate the, the practice of pathology in terms of the value exactly. and what we can offer to doctors and patients. Our guest has been uh, Jason Hornick from Harvard Medical School, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and Editor-in-Chief of the American Registry of Pathology. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.